Hello friends, welcome back to the show. And if you're joining us for the first time, then this is Roots to Roots, the platform that welcomes guests who have committed to bringing about a positive change or awareness to the world around them through their career or just something that they love to do. And for those who are not familiar yet, my aim is to get the guest to go on a journey of self-understanding by exploring their personal family stories and their heritage. Today's guest is Lucy Fulford, a very talented journalist and filmmaker whose storytelling dives deep into the heart of belonging, migration and conflict. She was born in Sydney to Indian and English parents, and if the name does ring a bell, you may have caught her compelling pieces in the likes of The Guardian, Sunday Times and CNN. Lucy's career has taken her from covering breaking news and crime for national press through to reporting on the front lines of the eastern Ukrainian conflict. But it's her work as an author which is what really hits close to home for me, and it will for a number of you that are listening. She is the author behind the incredibly well-written book, The Exiled, which uncovers untold stories of resilience and illuminates an essential chapter in recent history. In this masterpiece, Lucy weaves together diverse immigrant stories and heartfelt interviews, including those of our own families, to highlight a historical turning point in Uganda, when in 1972, the Ugandan president Idi Amin forced the country's entire Asian population to leave within 90 days. These people, amounting to almost 60,000 of them, were made to leave with a suitcase and a total of £50 in cash with almost half of them arriving onto the airstrips of Britain where they began building new life for themselves. For those who've followed this podcast since the beginning or know me personally, you'll know that the first season featured interviews that I carried out with members of my own family and now Lucy's book helps to further illuminate these essential chapters in British history. Expect to learn about her inspiration behind writing the book, the impact on her identity as an Australia born with British and East African Indian roots, why she chose to study journalism history, and what it's like as a female from a mixed background in the world of journalism and media. And of course, much more. Please show your love for the show and the guests by clicking the subscribe button on wherever you're getting this podcast from. And finally, let's give a warm welcome to Lucy Fulford. Lucy, welcome to the show. Oh, thank you very much for having me. So this is really exciting because uh, as a bit of background, I had a guest called Simon Ong, who's an author himself. He had a book signing, which was at the Battersea bookstore. And I couldn't make that day. So I just had a look at what other events were going on. And that's how I came across the one that you were hosting two days later. (laughs) So I was like, this is amazing. You know, I can't make the Tuesday one. And I've actually come across a book signing that I really want to go to. So the plan was to go to that and speak to you in person. That obviously didn't happen for unfortunate events, but still, I thought, let me reach out to you because honestly, I mean, I know we're going to get into it, but your book is exactly the type of book that I'm looking to write and have started writing. Mm -hmm. What I want to know is, you know, where it all began. And I'd love to start with the story that you've collected. Mm -hmm. Amazing. Oh, well, thank you. Uh, Yeah, it's nice, like the way that fortuitous things like that happen that can spark an interest and it's amazing to hear that just sort of reading the blurb of the book was interesting to you and yeah I really kind of wrote it with that sort of diaspora audience in mind and with a wide audience as well but really hoping that talking about my family journey other people's journeys would resonate with people who've had all kinds of different migratory journeys um, to Britain 
Yeah, so The Exiled is about Ugandan Asian history primarily, but really that broader picture of uh, immigrant lives, next generation identity. Um, and in doing so, I tracked my own family story, but also uh, loads of other people, uh, which was wonderful to like make all those connections. And uh, yeah, I suppose the inspiration is that it's my family history. So um, yeah, my grandparents, mother, aunt and uncle were part of the uh, tens of thousands of people exiled from Uganda in 1972. Um, they had come from Kerala and in South India to East Africa, and then they went to the UK and then on to Australia, which is where I was born. And then later, me and my parents moved back to the UK. So it's always been quite like a long explanation on that front. And that's the thing, you know, it's what inspired me to collect my stories in the first place, because being from London, you know, that's where the majority of the exiled Ugandan Asians went to, uh, along with, um, I know a lot of them went to Canada, parts of Europe and the rest in Australia. But being in London, it didn't. I didn't feel that out of place because a lot of my friends growing up, although quite mixed, there were qu quite a few from my background. So I thought, oh, this is a common occurrence or a common theme in diverse cities. It's only then when I started to travel or when I lived in China for a bit, obviously people could tell by how I sounded that I wasn't from born in a South Asian country. But also when they asked like, oh, where are your parents from? I very rarely say Indian background. It would always, I would always say East Africa, which is also, it's another story of where I feel more connected to. Mm. But it's that idea of the surprise that they were like, but you don't look like you're East African. And that made me want to explore the story. But, you know, with your grandparents, do you know why they left India in the first place? Yeah. So it's interesting what you say about, yeah, growing up in that sort of community. I had kind of the opposite experience where I definitely wasn't surrounded by a lot of um, East African Asian background um, kids. So yeah, it gives a completely different perspective. Um, my grandparents moved basically for economic reasons. So which is part of why many, many people were moving, um, making that journey sort of uh, India through to East Africa. They had got married, they were living separately because of employment in different places so my uncle was actually in um, uh, northern Sri Lanka or Ceylon then and my grandmother was still in South India so they this were just writing letters to each other like their first year of marriage it's kind of um, interesting to think about really like that but they needed to have have that building blocks for their for their life and so that's what they were doing and then um kind of just by chance it well, I don't from what I've understood think it was planned at all a, a recruiter a British recruiter came to uh their part of the world and um you know different people heard he was around someone got in touch with um my grandmother's father and he sort of hooked them up for an interview so she basically had an interview speaking for both of them because my grandfather was uh, not there and uh, yeah, sort of taking your CVs effectively talking mm. about your um, yeah, their university education and they were both teachers and they wanted teachers essentially. So uh, yeah, they got, they got hired. So I, I don't know what would have happened if that interaction hadn't happened. I don't actually, I never really spoke to them about whether they sort of always had eyes elsewhere. Yeah. It's some of those questions you never really think to ask. But my understanding is it just was kind of going with where the wind blew them at that point. And East Africa was seen as a land of promise. 
um, working for the British was seen as, you know, quite a good thing, you know, and there was, yeah, more money, more opportunity and um, a chance to to make a life, even though a lot of their family were like, what on earth are you doing? You're going yeah. to this dark continent. And there was a lot of, you know, negative stereotypes about Africa as well amongst kind of Indian communities. So I definitely think it was adventurous of them and, and brave. I really like what you said at the end there, because, well, there's two things. I know that the British almost pitched East Africa as the American dream for Hindus, right, in that move. And that was part of the almost a forced move of all the, uh, you know, labor denturers to work on the railway. But even, you know, for likes of your background family and even mine who went there for the opportunity, it was really much sold as this place that presented that sort of American dream vibe that India didn't offer. Mm. What you say there around the adventure is something that I've come to realize a lot that this idea of an entrepreneurial mindset and entrepreneurial spirit you know it's a very in the last like couple of decades or or probably you know two three decades where we've really like embraced that term as you know not doing just the corporate nine-to-five job or not just working in an industrial factory but really chasing what you believe in and your passion and your own startup but really when you think about it you know a century or so ago that really wasn't embracing an entrepreneurial mindset where it's this huge risk like you say or this adventure that they didn't know what was on the other side Mm. but they could sense that it was a chance for a better opportunity either for them or more likely for their family because it's very collective right yeah and for their children you think you're building something for the next generation and it's interesting what you say about entrepreneurial because that's a word I very much especially in the Ugandan Asian context associate with the sort of business minded people and that was like a big part of what the community became known for in East Africa. Um, but yeah, it, you're right. Even just going for um, a paid employment is still recognizing, yeah, you're stepping outside of the norm almost in that, in that sense. Do you recall what, your, what the experience of your parents was like in growing up in East Africa? Yeah, so it was just my mother who grew up there um, and... I yeah obviously just have what she's told me um but ever since I was quite young I was always very interested in it um my father was British I was equally interested in hearing about his life um you know I was in Sydney they both Uganda and the UK were equally interesting other places to me and I got kind of what I since I've started interviewing loads of other people I had what I realized is quite a typical narration of a Ugandan childhood for South Asians which is, you know, really quite idyllic, this idea of like a beautiful, perfect climate, wonderful food, like lush landscapes and, you know, a nice social community and sort of outdoors lifestyle safe um, and fun. And I think, yeah, Uganda was kind of a, a lovely childhood as far as I'm aware from for my family. Um, and then, of course, when you pick into the details, you realize there's all these complexities behind how one group of people is having a relatively comfortable experience when other people maybe aren't, aren't. And, uh, that's, that's the whole nature of colonialism. But I think everybody felt like it was a, a elevated lifestyle than they would have had if they'd remained in India. Do you notice what the, the knock-on effects of, you know, the exodus, which you speak in your book about when it comes to your own family situation, especially for your mom and her family, how did they feel about it and has that changed over time and what 
you know, knock-on effects in terms of either positive or negative in the character building side of them have you noticed as a result? Yeah, I mean, I think everybody in my family just had this attitude of getting on with it. And I think that's quite common in this experience as things are wildly out of your control. You know, the Ugandan president had given people 90 days to leave the country that they had all called home. And uh, it was sort of unbelievable to many people. Um, my grandparents as teachers were able to stay on a little bit longer because the government kind of realized that if everybody left at exactly the same time, then a lot of the sort of social structures were going to capsize. So they were some of the later people to leave. And my grandma wrote in her diary, it's a quite not written sort of at the time, but looking back on her life later uh, of that time, there's just a sentence that always stuck with me where she put um, the Ugandan business, good or bad, was over. And I think that kind of typifies that attitude of, you know, like I'm closing that door on that. I don't necessarily want to think about how it's made me feel. Wow. I'm just kind of on to the next thing, which is survival, really. And they came to the UK with the help of a church, sort of missionaries um, who had been in Uganda. And that's quite an unusual route. Like a lot of people came and had to spend time in refugee camps and um, or staying with relatives. So it, it's relatively comfortable as being exiled can be. Uh, but still, you know, there's a lot of trauma that comes with losing your uh, possessions, losing your pets, losing your friends, losing your status. And I think that's like a big knock-on effect, like having to deal with going down a career ladder quite dramatically, especially if sort of education is something you've always prized and you work in that that area. Uh, but they never talked about the difficult times with me. I did try and ask them a little bit when I was younger, but they were very kind of proactive in just looking forwards and making the best of situations and not sort of dwelling on life being unfair and that's very kind of inspirational I would say and similarly the experiences of their children were all very different and speaking to them everybody has totally different viewpoints on perhaps the same experience which is obviously common and being different ages and then going on to lead different lives but I do think everybody kind of didn't focus on it a great deal probably until I started interrogating mm. them all about it and my mum has definitely said that you know the stuff that I've been asking her or we've been discussing for the book has made her think about things for the first time or think about them differently and um, I think overall that has been a positive I hope. <laughs> yeah and this is what I love because I can really share that sentiment where having collected my dad and his side of the family stories which is how this podcast came about for me, in the beginning, it was just a case of I wanted to leave behind a digital version of the stories for the future generations because mm -hmm. it's something that we have access to that previous generations didn't. And what I didn't realize in the beginning in that was how I think in the way that they've been raised and the culture they were raised in, it's kind of not to talk about your own business. Mm -hmm. And I don't think in the place of like wanting to be secretive or closed off, but it's just almost a case of like, my story's not interesting, right? Mm -hmm. And a lot of it is to close the door on something that where there was at least 90 days, if not longer, of quite a traumatic period, right? Mm -hmm. um, first in the announcement of you have to leave all the way through to finding your place in the new country, mm -hmm. be it the UK, Australia, wherever it was. And it becomes even more crucial, the work that you've done, just for the sake of inspiring their generation to realize how important their story is um, but also for others to hear it and think 
wow, you know, there is there is something that I can learn from what they actually went through because it's very easy to go through life and even think, oh, you know, my parents aren't cool, right? They just sit <laughs> and watch TV now. But it's like, well, they actually did, not in all cases, but, you know, in cases where these kind of things happened, they actually went through one hell of a journey or an adventure mm. um, an experience of like turmoil and whatnot in order for me as their child to be given the opportunities that I have. Yeah, and I think when I've been interviewing people for the book that has been a common sort of feedback like that sort of surprise that their story is deemed interesting enough to be included in a book and I specifically went into this project with that kind of attitude in mind which is that everybody does have something interesting and you just need to sort of give them the space to explore it and that there is a lot of commonality between Ugandan Asian migratory experiences and I wasn't sort of looking for anything specific I just wanted to speak to people and find out what they had to say and within that there would be sort of certain stories that would I would give more space to because they were maybe more representative or more interesting but really I wasn't kind of going around searching through loads of people to find this golden story Mm. almost everybody that I spoke to uh, was included in some way because I just think yeah there's something to be found in everybody's life experiences and it's so um, affirming for someone to hear that you know that what they went through someone cares about and I think that's just a really nice element to this kind of storytelling and before we get further into that there's something that you touched on earlier which is where our experiences differed growing up Mm -hmm. so you weren't really surrounded by people of uh, you know a similar background or backstory um, or even sort of upbringing experience to you what was that upbringing like yeah so I grew up in Sydney which is a very multicultural city and So in that sense, like I was equally around people of color as I was white people. And I really never thought about feeling different, even though I wasn't in a sort of South Asian community. So I had, yeah, like just a really diverse group of friends and um, we would kind of, you know, there's obviously a big East Asian influence in, in Australia as well. And we would go and have Chinese dim sum yum cha, like as often as we would go and have Indian food as a family. And my first first primary school, actually, they taught their second language based on what the largest other language spoken in the sort of school cohort oh. was, which I think is an amazing idea. Yeah. And so it was Mandarin. And that's kind of representative of, of what that kind of upbringing was like. And yeah, I was very idealistic as a kid. Like I didn't think there was any difference between people. I thought, you know, wars and genocides and things like that were passed like I remember thinking you know we're different everybody just gets on cohesively which now is pretty laughable um so in that sense yeah I had kind of the Indian influence from my mother's side of the family but otherwise not very regularly but then when we moved to the UK it was like a big shift because I moved directly into like a majority white area and it was really the first time I was around 12 that I would be in a room and feel like ostensibly out of place and I maybe couldn't really name what that was at the time I had an Australian accent back then as well and I was just generally very awkward and I think I thought maybe it was just being different in that sense but looking back at it it's very clear to me that the difference was the way that I looked and that was sort of yeah like a really uncomfortable adjustment going into your teenage years and feeling kind of like a fish out of water really so I think um doing this book has really reconnected me in a lot of ways with my sort of South Asian roots and and that's been kind of a unintended side effect of it really I didn't go into it with that intention but it's been like one of the nicest things from it. It's amazing that w- when you spoke about you know coming here with an Australian accent 
there's something really interesting that I heard. We as humans are predisposed to be prejudiced, actually not to people of a different color, but people that sound different to us. And I think that stems all the way back to, you know, caveman times or before there was, you know, much access to transport because you have your tribe, the closest other people to you are people who would be in the next tribe, which would be in the next town across. And the chances are that they don't look that different to you in terms of the color of their skin. But there's a huge likelihood that in their, the, language, their tonations yeah. and their language and their accent, that is where difference comes in. So, and also when you think about it, the, you know, if, if someone, if you approach someone that's new and they look different to you or they're a different color skin, but they sound like you, then you already have a relatability. Mm. If you meet someone who looks just like you, but they sound completely different, then all of a sudden you form this almost opinion or view that firstly they're different to you because, oh, they've come from a, a more posh area or a more rundown area. And it shows how much that impact of accent, even if you do fit in, in terms of a physical appearance mm -hmm. way, can have on the way that you're perceived. Yeah, no, that's so interesting. And I can completely understand how that would happen. And yeah, especially at a young age, like you don't want anything to set you apart. So um, I think it's really interesting. And also I think there's, this, I've also read about, there's like a certain age where you like are more inclined to keep an accent. It's something like 14 and I was just underneath that. So um, yeah, just went. <laughs> <laughs> there's something that you speak about in your book, in the opening chapter, and you talk about how on this journey of writing it, it was also a journey for you in finding a sense of belonging. Mm. Balancing your sort of Australian, British and um, sort of Indian African background cultures and, and the sort of environments that you've been raised in, what impact did that have on your own, you know, idea of your identity or sense of belonging? I mean, for a lot of time, I, I probably haven't given a lot of thought to my sense of belonging and it's been sort of in the background, but I think when it has sort of popped up, it has been often a sense of feeling not enough. And I think that is something that people who have multiple places in their background do often speak to, which is this idea that, yeah, you're not, you're not Indian enough. I certainly wouldn't feel particularly East African, um, Asian. And then, um, yeah, like I feel Australian, but my voice is, puts me out of place there now. Um, and then in many ways I sound very British, but I don't feel like I'm fully from here either. So at times maybe that difference has felt uncomfortable. And I think one of the things that the book project has really helped me with is understanding that it's as not understanding, but feeling that it's a strength rather than a, a any kind of detriment. And there's some stuff that I talk about later in the book and that other kind of scholars have spoken about, which is this idea of multiple identities, you know, being able to be held simultaneously, but also that they can um, change in sort of dominance depending on the situation that you're in um, or the place that you're in or the, the, the time. And I really like that because you sort of almost feel like, oh, am I being disingenuous mm. by not being kind of consistent in how I feel, but actually... When you think about it, it's perfectly natural to like that some parts of your identity or personality would come out in different circumstances or company. And so I really like that. And I think um, sort of leaning more into that now, really. Yeah, it's interesting what you say there, because so this this idea of identity, do you think that you can have more than one identity 
in terms of your own genuine inside feeling of it? Or do you think one has to replace the other? Uh, for me, I'd say you can have multiple. Um, I don't think that's a cop out as an answer. I think it is just that that is how I feel. Like, I don't think I can solely say I have a singular identity at all. And it's not like identity only really relates to nationality or, or place either. There's obviously so many other facets to it. And I I don't like the idea that as a human, you have to be sort of fixed in time. I think it's obviously great to be consistent in your general approach to life. But I think we learn something new every day. Like how could that not change the way that we relate to the world? And that would impact my identity, I think. And so what was schooling like? Um, yeah, I was always quite like a nerd when I was younger, yeah. <laughs> probably still am. So yeah, no, I've always loved learning, um, which was fortunate with my two teacher grandparents and the sort of Indian attitude towards education being, you know, everything. But it was on both sides of my family. Like, um, my my dad went to Cambridge and like he was sort of the first like one in his family to do something like that and yeah we kind of grew up in a very newsy family so it was always about being kind of engaged with the world and um yeah wanting to learn stuff although yeah I always leaned towards the arts rather than the sciences um I think yeah some people might have preferred me to take the science doctor route but um yeah you touch on something there which I've mentioned in previous episodes but especially coming from backgrounds that are quite commonly considered immigrant backgrounds, mm -hmm. right? And one of the things that it touches on is the expectation that it places on the children. And one of the, th one of the points that it mentions is that that style of parenting is great and it's why you see, you know, so many people from immigrant backgrounds or with parents from Im immigrant backgrounds doing so well in education and then going on and to have really successful careers. Mm. But the limiting side is it usually takes a more conventional or traditional route of success in terms of what it considers, you know, its preferred route of achievement. Mm. And so the likes is of, you know, that well-respected career. So mm -hmm. whether it is the doctor or engineer or lawyer, um, th the downside which it calls one of the pathologies is that it usually has this cap because these are usually careers where there is an upper limit to to where it can get you but it's it's you know a very respected upper limit did you ever face that sort of challenge where there was the expectation to follow the more conventional routes that were known in these backgrounds to be you know the successful route for my kid to take yeah, I think there was sort of that unspoken and maybe sometimes spoken um, idea from the Indian side of my family to have that more traditional path. Like, yeah, doctor, lawyer, clearly the prized career paths to follow. But yeah, it's not something that I ever felt a lot of pressure around. Everyone's, it's not that kind of vibe. And um, I was always quite like a outspoken person when I was younger, probably much more than I am now. And so like I headstrong, like I knew what I wanted to do um, and I kind of wasn't going to be pressured into doing something different. And I think that's obviously made it easier because what I was doing was still academic, like I was still, you know, getting my grades. Um, but yeah, I kind of was always interested in history, journalism, like from relatively early, I sort of that was the broad direction I was going in. And um, that's still quite like a, it's not exactly... Um, doing something completely different is it like it's still quite like a, a standard career path and I think I'm freelance now and that probably isn't what everybody 
imagines to be like a, a stable future, but it really works for me. And I think, um, yeah, I've been really lucky. No one's ever um, done anything other than encourage me in what, in what I do. Um, but yeah, I think what you say, yeah, it's understandable when you think about it. Like when you're younger, you maybe think, oh, why am I family pressuring me to do something? Or why is there all this expectation on me that I have to get, do well in school or have like a sort of financially successful career? And when you look at it and you think like what those previous generations have been through with the intention for you to have like a stable life, you can really understand why they would have those concerns for you and it is coming from a good place but also like yeah there's that sort of element of you have to let people do what they want so like yeah you've given them the you worked hard to give them a good baseline but like it's up to them where they take that yeah so true why journalism and history Mm. (laughs) yeah I've always been interested in the world I've always like wanted to travel and like find out about and the past and sort of the recent past has always been my bigger interests so and not so much interested in ancient history. Like I, I really like the things that have a direct ramification on what we're experiencing today. So I suppose my interest in history is a way to understand the world that I'm in. And um, so, yeah, I've kind of focused on things within the past hundred years, probably. And so, yeah, in my history degree, I did a lot of kind of, um, I did as much African history as I could, some so Indian, colonial was limited on the syllabus at that point now actually the uni i went to is like teaches ugandan asian history which is amazing so like things have really moved on in in that period of time which i love and sort of yeah east eastern europe and russia has also been an interest i really like that you brought up the point of your own personal interest in recent history because i'll admit in school i had very little interest in history and now when i look back on it and reflect on you know what I do now in every episode is cover people's history and I love it. But when I thought into it, it's, it probably is driven by the fact that, you know, like you say, it is changing, but in the schooling system, especially when I was there, it very much was about those long periods ago moments in history that for sure were very defining to the country that I live in. Um, But, you know, when you're looking at the likes of uh, the Romans and the Vikings and 1066, it's things that I found very hard to, relate to or really appreciate because Mm. it was so long ago whereas I want to pick up something that actually it was one of the the reviews left on your book but I think it's called Tom Tom Parfit Mm -hmm. he commented on it as a remarkable and deeply researched exploration of a neglected moment in British social history Mm -hmm. and I love that last part because one of the things that when I've been asked what has this show given you in terms of value and I think one of the main things is the idea of making modern history relevant Mm. right it's taking those stories where through understanding people's personal stories because that's ultimately what we get such a sense of joy in right it's why we love Netflix shows that are based Mm -hmm. on true stories because when it's something that's actually happened it it entices us even more and on this idea you know taking note of these moments in history is what ultimately gives us a perspective and also empathy Mm. of the people around us because then we understand what people have gone through to get them to where they are so it's amazing that you had that sense of interest at such an early age because I mean yeah I'm probably in awe because I definitely didn't (laughs) yeah and I mean my interests were not that niche when I was younger like I was very interested in the Nazis and like 
but again it was it was things like reading Anne Frank's diary at a young age that really connected me to that so again it's exactly what you've just said it's that personal story that makes you relate to a bigger history um so I think yeah I responded to the kinds of history I was learning when I was younger and you know we know yeah it's your Henry VIII it's both the world wars 1066 this stuff is what in this country you do learn kind of on repeat um but yeah I think that was probably the identifying differences yeah that was the stuff I was more interested in than than the older older stuff and yeah the quote from um Tom who's a times journalist and he's just written another book himself actually which is cool amazing um he he said yeah british social history and i think placing it there is really important because yeah. so often it's like when i go into a bookshop to find my book which is maybe a bit narcissistic <laughs> but we all do it i have to think where is it going to be and it's like where has that bookseller decided to place it and it's like there could be when you write something that spans a lot of categories it's complicated and even just in terms, you know, it could be in sort of social issues, it could be in like race relations, it could be in history. If we look at history, is it being put into British history? Is it being put into African history? And that's an interesting just differentiation because it's like where you place something like this. And I think very often this is not seen as British history. Mm. It's seen as international affairs. It's seen as, yeah, African studies. And of course, Africa is a huge part of this story. But it's also British history. And I think that's kind of one of the things I've been trying to show towards the, the last part of the book, which is sort of the book's broken up into three parts. And the last is Reckoning, where I'm kind of trying to like demonstrate how this relates to today. And that is saying that this is something that we in Britain should know. And it shouldn't just be diaspora or immigrant background communities who know about it. And it's, you know, perfectly in time with the fact that we just had the 50th anniversary yeah um, have you seen you know even since you started writing the book or collecting these stories that there has been a shift in appreciation for that geographical part of history yeah I mean I think the anniversary last year was great that was kind of why I started writing the book at this point in time because a few years before I had it in mind as a time people would be talking about this and right publishing the book sort of after allowed me to wrap in the kind of feelings around the 50th anniversary into the book I think it's great to have those points to focus on. And yeah, there's obviously these oral history projects have brought so many more people into this. One of the frustrations I have is this idea that we can only talk about a history like this on a certain momentous occasion. And I think that is something that's come up a few times. You know, we've talked about this last year, therefore it's kind of been done. Mm. Or like, why didn't you write this for last year? Because that was like the time to talk about it. And I understand that I'm a journalist, you know, you do want to peg things to relevant um, time periods, but also there's something I feel really uncomfortable about with that, which is this idea that minority history is sort of pigeonholed to specific times. You know, we have our Black History Month currently, and that's great because it gets people talking about it, but it's not enough and we don't have to restrict ourselves. So I think, um, yes, more people are talking about it, but I do still feel like it's a little bit like wanting to be placed in certain corners, which I would love to see change a little bit. This brought up something else that I remember reading in your book where you talk about almost the praise, and I'm trying to think of the words that you used, but this um, almost celebrating mm -hmm. of uh, these moments in history that at the time were obviously 
very daunting. But, you know, when we celebrate the successes that have come off it and you give the examples of like Riz Ahmed or Dev Patel, you know, and you talk about people that have made it and it's almost like placing the focus on the success stories almost gives it the undeserved credit that it was such a great thing for, um, you know, this diaspora. Yeah, I think it's complicated because you want to see people doing well. It's motivating, you know, just that thing of, you know, growing up now versus 10, 20 years ago, like you would see such a diversity of people on TV that you just never would before. And that is, that is really powerful for people. So yeah, I absolutely want to celebrate people's successes, but I think it can kind of, yeah, give a skewed idea of what a broader population is experiencing, which is, isn't true. Or kind of emphasizing this idea that you do need to be successful to be uh, approved of almost. Mm. Can you recall any sort of deeply emotional or impactful stories that I guess have really affected your views or way of thinking? Yeah, I mean, a lot of the stuff I used to cover in court still resonates with me. You see people on their lowest moments and sometimes what you perceive to be a mis a miscarriage of justice is that it (laughs) yeah Yeah, i think so yeah yeah some of the stories i covered in court still stay with me to to this day um i can picture people's faces you know you see them on their lowest moments and sometimes yeah miscarriages of justice as far as i (laughs) understood the case to be um and yeah also like the kind of unpredictability of of human responses so sometimes going to talk to someone and um expecting a welcome and they're very hostile um other times going to talk to someone whose family have you know just suffered a tragic loss and they really want to share like their memories of that person um and yeah sort of prior to the more recent invasion of ukraine i have also worked in ukraine covering the 2014 war um probably in the years where everyone had kind of forgotten about it and it was this news story that no one really was covering very much and those the people that I met there those stories really affected me because you know they they just wanted people to know what was going on and so many news editors didn't want to publish stories at that point and it's this challenge where there's just so many things that we need to be hearing that there's not always the space for all of them yes I can't even imagine what some of these situations are like because I think it's it's well communicated especially among our generation that there is a lot of spread of either fake news or very biased news i think every newspaper or news article is known for what bias they take for various reasons but you know when you're on the inside i you kind of get to see what happens even behind the scenes of that news yeah i mean i think there's certainly fake news there's bias but there's also just like i think it's difficult to be fully objective with with anything and other people would probably disagree with me on that and I think it's just important to know what you're coming out a story with from a personal perspective, but also, um, yeah, each publication has, has their angle on things because they have a certain audience that they're, they're producing content for. And that's not to say that you can't trust anything out there. It's just, you need to engage your brain and understand like why some stories will get more focus with, with some people than, than others. Um, but yeah, on the inside, yeah, you do even on a basic level, write completely differently for, 
a tabloid than you would for a broadsheet. It's just a different kind of language and that's a skill in it in itself. You touched on something there which reminded me when I was taking a screenwriting course because I wanted to explore the idea of turning these family stories into firstly a book like mm-hmm. you've done um, but then also uh, you know turning it into potentially some sort of screenplay. Mm-hmm. We had someone come and speak and I feel really bad I don't remember the woman's name because she's quite well known and she was she gave the example of you know the famous picture of in Sudan where there's the kid who is you know severely mal malnourished and it looks like she's about to die and then there's a a bird mm-hmm. potentially a vulture and you know you probably already know this but the story of the photographer who took it he won a prize for it um but he said that as soon as he took the picture he kind of went into not hiding but went under a tree lit a cigarette and could not stop shaking because one thing that journalists photographers are told is they can't do anything to interfere with the natural course of action and i think it's it's an unwritten rule of ethics there's nothing by law saying you can't do this but i think you know to gather the actual story on the ground you're not meant mm. to interfere and that you know that there's another example of a videographer during a war who could have saved someone's life i think he went on to save the mm. guy's life but there was questions raised about should you have interfered to save the person's life and then yeah. then it's it's a battle of like moral code versus you know i guess journalist ethics how do you deal with you know almost that humanitarian toll when it comes to these sort of issues it's interesting saying that i think I, I I wouldn't have a problem interfering to help someone out. I don't yeah. I don't think any story is more important than someone's well being or life. And I do hopefully think that things have shifted a little bit since that kind of era of of storytelling. That was a certain kind of very male dominated, cutthroat, competitive reporting. There is a movement against that now. You know, sort of slower, more engaged, deep, connected reporting, which hopefully I'm a part of. Yeah, there there is that point. And when you're kind of in it, when you're telling a story, and especially if you're in a more news driven environment, which is kind of quite pacey, there is the possibility of becoming quite focused on like that as a goal and like forgetting these are real people and real experiences around you. But yeah, no, I've definitely had occasions where I've had the opportunity to report something that I didn't feel right about. And um, yeah, I, I didn't. And that's something that I can, yeah, you want to say that you can feel comfortable with all of the decisions you've made. Obviously, everybody, you might look back at something and wish you'd done something differently, but the comfort of who you're dealing with is is the most important thing to me. And because like they're being generous, like it's not a right for me to ask someone a question and them to answer it. Mm. I think in, and we have so much content today and everybody's filming things and like shoving cameras in people's faces. And there's almost maybe an expectation that like everyone's should be okay with that and it's 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 a privilege if someone wants to talk to you so yeah you should you should um have some responsibility around that for sure yeah i guess no i guess you're right i guess obviously it was an extreme example Mm. to set the scene of the the sort of inner battle between ethics um and and i mean in some sorry to interrupt in some senses it is complex and like if you're in a a conflict situation then obviously you don't want to jeopardize your neutrality as a journalist so that's where you maybe have a little bit more complexity around these things you don't want to be the person that makes someone else say that another journalist is unreliable because Mm. of a decision that you made um so that that's probably something to a context where that makes a lot of sense yeah you know and i guess it it does apply a lot to sort of photojournalism Mm. and 
I mean, it it really is a, a striking image. And I forgot to mention, you know, he, because as a result of this, and I think almost the guilt of winning an award, I, th- I believe that the little girl went on to survive, but him knowing he didn't do anything about it, you know, he went on to commit suicide. Mm-hmm. And I'll, I'll, I'll put the picture up for people who are watching the video version on YouTube, but it it's a really striking image. And I think just in general, that made me dive deeper into other pictures that he'd taken and other mm-hmm. Sudanese pictures. And, you know, so it was a horrible situation. So I, I can imagine how, as the role of a photojournalist, especially in these kind of environments, it's a lot of like sort of mental burden almost to take on, right? I think, you know, rightfully so, doctors and, and nurses and surgeons, they get um, at least appreciated for doing work that a lot of people probably wouldn't be capable. And then, you know, you have shows like This Is Gonna Hurt, I believe on BBC, mm-hmm. which is a part comedy, part drama take on what it's really like in that life. But I feel, you know, as a photojournalist... I guess your your chief underlying role is not to save lives, but you're putting yourself in situations where you are seeing things that are quite quite burdensome to take on. Yeah, and there is a more and more conversation in the journalism community around trauma or vicarious trauma even, which is that you may not have even been in the circumstance. But uh, as per recent events, if you're looking at a lot, a lot of videos online of, of traumatic events, like that can also um, have at all so like people who are doing digital verification for things like it's not just your frontline people who mm. who are kind of absorbing the impact of, of global events so yeah there's there's it's something that you need to be aware of like how do you manage your mental health i think is it your book work that got you the sort of was it penguin right now alum yeah so that was a scheme that penguin runs uh, for underrepresented writers to kind of teach them a little bit about the industry and i actually can't remember the roots of how I applied for it but I did and you just had to send a writing sample and so I sent like a couple of pages of the beginning of this book which I think I actually wrote specifically for that and um so yeah I was long listed for that and it just gives you a conversation with an editor and just explains a little bit about the publishing industry which is quite an enigma from the outside and like so many industries is very kind of closed quite um white majority and like hasn't really been very accessible to a lot of people um so yeah that was a really pivotal part of me getting on this book writing journey I also participated in a similar scheme through HarperCollins and they just kind of give you a little bit of direction and um actually the best thing that came out of both of these things was meeting other writers Uh, so I yeah even though it was COVID time, so we were all online for this stuff, I was able to just like start like WhatsApp conversations with people. And actually some of these people are some of my closest friends now. So yeah, wonderful. You can't, community is, you know, essential for everything, I think. Yeah, you talk about the, um, what one of their purposes, underrepresented backgrounds. And even on the point that we discussed of how, I guess, the ethics have changed of uh, the roles of, you know, photojournalists and journalists, um, you know, being very, I guess, dominated by a sort of male environment, and we, see, I see this come up a lot in in this in this podcast, where people that are on this journey of bringing purpose or meaning to something that they strongly believe in, mm. underrepresentation mm. is still such a big mm-hmm. talking point. And looking at this underrepresentation in media, mm. I just want to pick up something that I read in the guardian actually which was a set of studies that they did 
They say that for every woman who was an editor-in-chief, the analysis found that there were at least two, and in some places up to 12, men of the same level. And these challenges facing especially women of colour, which mm -hmm. it goes into, but even just in terms of gender, so women uh, in racially diverse countries, so South Africa, UK, mm. US, was actually even greater. Mm. <laughs> it, it goes on to say that, you know, in Britain, where 37% of the media organisations surveyed said they had a female editor-in-chief, only 1% had a woman in colour, right? Mm. So there's, it's, it's interesting because I guess the media industry was dominated or possibly still is by, you know, these billionaires who tend to be white males. Mm -hmm. The final thing it, it goes on to say is in 2022, the Pew Research Centre surveyed that 76% of journalists surveyed were white and only 3% were Asian. Mm. So these, for me, were very surprising and striking facts and there's this quote that i always remember by malcolm x mm -hmm. and i remembered it when you were speaking earlier which is that he said that the media is the ultimate powerhouse mm -hmm. something along those lines and he says that it has the power to prove an innocent person guilty and a guilty person innocent so when you're talking about those um miscarriages of justice mm -hmm. that really struck out you being on the inside what perception do you get of this underrepresentation? Yeah, it's a huge problem, underrepresentation in media. Um, I always used to really hate the word the media because it kind of makes it out to be like a conglomerate, mm. which is all kind of cohesive and acting against the general public. I, I don't believe that's the case. Um, everyone, there is a lot of diversity in, in publications and independence, even if there are your Murdochs who own too much of, of the world. Um, but yeah, I, I definitely have been... In, starkly in the minority as as a woman and as a woman of color and i think it's important to say just that gender difference because i often do slip into thinking of underrepresentation in terms of background rather than gender and yet yeah there still is this this huge gender imbalance as well and i think yeah it's a problem because it affects the kind of stories that are getting commissioned people I believe at least that people subconsciously are drawn towards things that they can relate to. Not not everybody. Obviously, people have the capacity to think outside of that, those means, but on a base level, that can often sway decision making. And I think um, some people take issue with sort of positive discrimination schemes and this kind of thing. But in the media, I think it is essential. Um, and it's since the management point is key because more and more younger people are getting into the industries. You know, we have some reporters who specifically cover black communities now at national publications, which is great. But if it's just still at a lower level and everybody after a certain tier upwards is not shifting and is still sort of your Oxbridge educated dominant sort of type uh, how much change is really going to happen. And I think that's that's something that happens in any industry. Like you reach like, yeah, that glass ceiling. If, if, if the management doesn't change, nothing else is really going to change. I do generally think it's moving in the right direction. Like I think, yeah, the statistics are really poor and, and yeah, don't get me wrong that that's depressing. But I do think that I see at least anecdotally like a much more wide range of storytelling and being published by sort of some of the big hitters as well. Like, yeah, you have your startups and your specialist media, which is really important, but also you need to have some of those big voices that are the traditional media, like they need to change as well. And I do see more stuff being talked about nowadays. Um, uh, but yeah, no, I've definitely been 
the only person of color in in newsrooms. I've definitely been in places where the only people I've seen are the cleaners apart from me. And yeah, it doesn't make you feel good. And I, I mentor some younger creatives and yeah, some of the questions that they ask me are like, how do I have confidence being in those spaces as someone of color or as someone who is clearly different to everybody else? And it's, it's a concern for people. And, and, you know, it's difficult to tell someone that you just have to try your best to, to deal with those situations because it's kind of the, the world that we live in. Those situations where, like you said, you found yourself, you know, as the uh, minority, let's say, mm. whether it's gender or race in the newsroom. How did that make you feel about the career choice you decided to make? Did it ever make you reconsider? I don't think it ever made me reconsider. And I think most of the time it's not the f- at the forefront of my mind. Like it's just every so often you realize in a conversation that you're the only one advocating for something and then you realize why. And I've in and it's not just in journalism it's in different uh, fields that I've worked in across the sort of creative and media industries um you know I found myself sort of really banging on about diversity or representation like why do we have a fully white lineup for this project etc and you realize that like other people will agree with you but they're not the ones that are like coming first with those those challenges and it's exhausting to be the person that's always pushing for change. And I think that's like when you are the minority and you're also trying to improve things for other people. Uh, yeah, it's just like, it's a, a big weight to bear and it shouldn't always, you know, it shouldn't be you down to you to educate other people. And yet you often find yourself in that role. What do you think needs to be done? I know you say aside from the sort of positive diversity hiring that pretty much all industries are trying to put into practice what else do you think needs to be done in order to really shift almost this culture that exists? Oh, that's a good question. I don't know if I know the answer to it. I think, yeah, like giving people the opportunity to be in those spaces is really important, but then giving people the opportunity to thrive once they're in them. And I think that's where it often falls short. So people can be hired and then realize they have no support from their team. Like, for example, when I've said on covering specific stories or covering things that other people might not think are important like to be the sole person advocating for something is difficult and a lot of people leave media because of this they don't get that backup from their team so I think probably the next step is to work on then making that actual working experience positive for people who are coming in you know there's this idea of a sort of downward commitment spiral and and it's, it's coined under this term of stereotype threat where you don't have that role model to look up to or even that vision that this is somewhere I can get to and then yeah like you say it kind of almost flushes itself out before it's even got a chance to thrive Mm. I think yeah that's definitely true I think one of the ways around it or to sort of support it is to say like maybe one particular company or industry is not creating the sort of upwards trajectory that you would like but to have kind of yeah you're kind of like other schemes, mentorship, unions, um, workshops, which do. So you can sort of say, yeah, maybe I don't work in a in a place that gives me someone I can look up to, but I can see that over there, here's a woman doing that role that I aspire mm-hmm. to. And so I think that, that that is what happens, that people kind of especially, yeah, there is a lot of um, sort of female focus groups that are, are kind of 
giving each other peer support across across the board as a, as a route around it. It's, it's not the perfect solution by any means, but it, it's better than nothing. And um, what is Story Trails? Uh, Story Trails was a uh, project I worked on last year. It was the UK's largest immersive project. So it took 50 creatives and with the remit of covering covering a story relevant to that locality. And by immersive, um, that's sort of VR, virtual reality, augmented reality, oh. um, mixed media, that kind of thing. So I, I made an augmented reality walking trail, which was also a Ugandan Asian story. So um, I did that in Bristol, which is a city I've also lived in. And um it's a family that also in the book and it's about their journey. And uh, so, yeah, it's basically using your mobile phone with an app to be holding that up in different places. And then uh, that will overlay like information uh, on your screen. So it was kind of like audio interviews, um, video, like archive cut together and some kind of 3D assets that, that do cool things. Yeah, yeah that's, that's fascinating. And I know it's, you know, we're moving into a world where people's attention spans especially the newer generation coming up. But I think even ours are getting less and less. I think, I don't know how this study was done, but it was proven somehow that our attention spans are actually less than a goldfish now <laughs> because of the likes of social media, our attention spans are shorter. Mm. And so that's why clips are getting shorter. TikTok, it's, it's all yeah, about, you know, 100%. in your face, right? You know, looking at the next generation, do you still sense that there is room for there really to be this appreciation and and understanding for what's going on in the global news and the world around them and things that are having an effect indirectly that's not in their immediate you know forefront yeah i mean my attention span is definitely decreased so <laughs> i would agree with that uh yeah i think kids are mostly interacting with short form video and that can be frustrating for some people to see but i think there's also like tons of opportunity to do exciting things in in those spaces i say that as someone who's never made a tiktok in my life so <laughs> I'm, I'm not classing myself as a person who's doing that um but i think also there is kind of almost a bit of pushback on it so at the same time as a growth in sort of short form content there's also like this real rise in long reads and like quite like deep dive, you know, podcasts, like in, it's almost like there was a captive audience before you had like a TV and a set number of channels that you had uh, newspapers that people read on the weekend and it wasn't up for debate. And yeah, in some ways that's quite appealing, but it was a very closed uh, loop of who was contributing to that media because it was, it was so much smaller. Now we have this explosion of, of so much more content and it's overwhelming but there's so many more voices that can be a part of it. And we have to be more selective about, you know, you can't read everything that's out there. That would be insane. So as, as a consumer, you have to be more selective about what you're going to engage with. But then when you're making it, you have to be more tactical about who, who it's for. So there's strengths and weaknesses to both of that, but it's, it's probably nicer to be making something with specific people in mind rather than just a limited amount of stuff that everybody has to have. On this show, we do have a closing tradition mm -hmm. where I take two questions that um, I've collected from various guests and even listeners. And um, the ones that I think would be most interesting to find out from you that we haven't already covered. Mm -hmm. Question number one, and this one I've adapted slightly, but what advice would you give to someone, you know, and especially off the back of this episode, who 
may be interested in exploring their own histories. For me, in some ways, it has. I've had to get over that stigma of feeling like it's a bit narcissistic to focus on yourself when there are other things you could be looking at. Um, but actually, yeah, like this wealth of information within our pasts is so much of who we are, even if we don't realize it. And um, I think, like I mentioned, people don't haven't often spoken about something. They don't necessarily think it's the most interesting thing. And like having that interest from someone else like most people are going to respond really favorably to that so I think my advice would just be like ask questions remember that people aren't around forever and that there will there is a finite time for this and that information does get lost and um yeah I was having a conversation with um my mum just the other day and I found out something wow about another part of the family that somehow I've never learned and even having done this project for years I haven't asked the right question to find out that that piece so yeah there's there's always somewhere new to go with it so um yeah just don't be scared to to ask a few probing questions and question two what is a hidden talent of yours that not many people know about (laughs) (laughs) I don't know if I have a hidden talent it's such a hard question isn't it yeah well, no, I can rap quite a lot of Eminem, but I'm not going to do it. <laughs> why? Why didn't I ask this in the beginning? This is why I need a research team to do real digging and background background knowledge of the guests. I, I'm, I'm going to definitely aim to do a part two with you. Yeah. <laughs> uh, either when you have, uh, you know, your next book or when some of the work that you're looking to do comes out. I'd love to sit down again. I think it's it's been a, you know, a really fascinating conversation. Like I said, right from the start, really personally for me, because you've ultimately written a book that I'm looking to write. And also just to uh, make sure that you do rap next time you're on. So <laughs> to listeners who are not liked and uh, who are not followed and subscribed, if they want to see Lucy rap <laughs> next time, then uh, make sure to click that button and you'll know as soon as it comes out. <laughs> yeah, no, thank you so much. And yeah, really looking forward to your book. So yeah. Hey, just a final quick thing from me. Firstly, thank you so much for tuning into this episode. But more so, you have my extra gratitude because you've listened right through until the end. That tells me that you found something useful or valuable in this conversation that meant it was worth listening to. If you haven't done so already, please do hit that subscribe button so that I know that this was a good episode and so that I can bring you more of the same with bigger and better guests. And with your follows and your reviews, that's going to help me do just that. That's all from me. And I really look forward to seeing you on the next episode.